Good evening. I'm so excited to be here tonight. You guys get, get all come along for the ride for like the bonus, but this is really just for me. I gathered four of my favorite people that reach out to others in love, and I want to ask them some really compelling questions that I'm curious about. And if you have some, some benefit from it too, that's great. Um, no, I will uh, tell you the origins of this night once I tell you a couple of uh, housekeeping details. First of all, uh, I am Grant Goins, one of the pastors here at Rollsburg Alliance, also the chairman of B1 Umpqua. The origins of tonight uh, came because I talked to a lot of you that attend this church or are involved in the community who asked me questions like this. Uh, you know, when, when I'm confronted by a homeless person that wants to ask me for money or food, sometimes I wonder what I should do, and I want to really help them. I don't want to hurt them. I want to help. What is the best way to help? I also get questions like, Hey, uh, I wanted to reach out to this person that needs help, but I also know that they like to go gambling. So what if, am I, am I, if we give them money, are they going to gamble it? What do I do with that whole conundrum? Uh, I get questions like, uh, my, my neighbor is always asking me for this, that, or the other thing, and I'm just tired of it, but I want to love them. How can I set an appropriate boundary? Um, or the, the things people ask me for, I think that I don't feel good about doing, but I want to do other things for them. How do I negotiate that whole thing? Are you sensing a theme here? I always answer the best I can. Sometimes I quote some of these people here because I've known them for most of my eight years here in Rillsburg. And I thought, what if we just all came together and heard from the horse's mouths, so to speak, um, their experience? So that's kind of where tonight came from. Uh, I'm planning to go till 8 o'clock max. I think there'll be time and room for some questions from you all. So be thinking of questions we don't answer in the, uh, the eight questions I've peppered them with. And we met a few weeks ago here, and we had some Jimmy Johns, and I was so enriched by that conversation. So if it's half as rich as it was then, tonight you're in for a real treat. So let me, let me pray for us, and I'll introduce our panel. Um, I'm going to pray because I am a pastor, and I do believe that, that God cares about these issues very much. Uh, for instance, here's some, some proof. Um, Psalm 145, the Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. Uh, when, when God's describing himself to Moses, he, he walks past Moses and he says, uh, my name is the Lord, or Yahweh, Yahweh, compassionate and gracious, full of mercy and steadfast love. And then he goes on. But the first thing he says is he's compassionate. And so compassion ought to define, it defines God, it ought to define his people. And all the ways we see compassion in this world should move us to say, wow, uh, I'm so grateful that God has put people on earth to do these kind of things. So with that, I'd like to pray and introduce our panel, and then we'll get off and running. Lord God, Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, I'm so grateful that you have uh, revealed yourself through the creation that you made, through um, people, through your word, the Bible, through prophets, through even coming to this earth yourself, and not staying distant, but getting involved in our mess. And thank you that you, as your people, you call us to get involved in messes as well. 
uh, not that we can be messiahs or saviors, but that we can express some of your compassion. You are the only one that can save ultimately. But you do call us, God, and you give us gifts, and you give us hands and feet and resources, and you also give us compassion to express in the world. So would you help us, Lord, as we want to do that uh, even better? We want to learn from some people. Would you just be our teacher here tonight, Lord? In your name we pray. Amen. So, introductions. I think we should have some some pulsating music and uh, uh, disco ball. Maybe next time we'll have the disco ball. But these are some really awesome people. Uh, first, on your left, Peggy Madison has had a long and illustrious career helping others through social work. Her career included the Department of Human Services, where she managed the Roseburg office. And after that, she administered the Department of Health and Social Services for the county before retiring a few years ago. And now she spends time with her grandkids, and her spare time helps senior citizens understand the Medicare system and advocates for foster families through ECHO, Every Child, Douglas County, uh, which partners people like you and me with the foster care system to bless our community. That's Peggy Madison. Uh, To her left, your right, is Melanie Prummer. She spent her life working in many kinds of helping professions. Uh, Many years ago, she worked for Catholic charities and helped unite foster children with their biological families. Uh, 18 years ago, she helped start the uh, Boys and Girls Club here in Roseburg, and currently she's the director of Battered Persons Advocacy here in town. She and her husband, Michael, are the forever family parents of three children that they have fostered. Uh, Next, we have Robert Miller, who spent the first 40 years of his life in the restaurant business. First time I met Robert, he was cooking food for our church staff, and I've never had a nicer meal, except the ones my wife makes. Um, He was in the restaurant business. He also spent time as a runner. He has some great stories from running, and he also was a sometime or much of the time wild child. Uh, but about 10 years ago, God got a hold of him and, and set his life in a different course to help others using parts of Robert's past that were pretty unfortunate. Uh, we call it redemption. We call it renewal. We call it you know remaking what's been broken. And after going back to school and getting his master's in social work, Robert opened FARA, which stands for Family, Faith, and Relationship Advocates, almost one year ago where he provides trauma-informed parenting classes, anger management classes, individual therapy, and play therapy, both for court-mandated and volunteer individuals that want those services. And finally, Clay Tillman. Uh, He he has a really interesting um, BA. He has a, a college degree in wilderness recreation. Isn't that cool? Uh, His friends called it a degree in playing outside. Uh, He has spent years being mentored and mentoring others while dangling from cliffs, in whitewater rafts, on trails, and occasionally while seated on the ground. Uh, He later trained as a counselor with master's degrees in Christian counseling psychology and marriage and family therapy. Clay has worked as a drug and alcohol counselor, worked with troubled youths in our schools, and has helped countless individuals and families through private practice as a therapist. Now he spends his time as the director, uh, as d- the director of community development for Youth for Christ of Umpqua Valley. Basically, that means he helps tell the story of lots of cool things happening with young people in our county and raising up people to pray for even more cool things to happen. So these are my friends, and welcome other friends and new friends. So let's dig into our questions, and the first one is for Peggy. Uh, well, she'll handle it first, then we'll see who else wants to answer it. Uh, Here's my first question. How should I respond when someone asks me for help, 
but I don't feel like I can or want to help them in the exact manner they're asking. This could be a homeless person with a sign asking for cash, a relative asking to move in with me, a neighbor wanting my advice for the tenth time on their abusive marriage. What if someone's asking me for help and I don't want to or can't help in the way that they've asked? Well, first of all, it's okay to say no. You need to have give yourself permission to say no. It might not be the right time for you. It might not be the right person for you. You may not be the right person to help that person. So you need to be okay with that. Just be kind and compassionate and say it as kindly as you can that you're not able to help at this time. You don't have to offer a reason, although you can if you want to. But just be kind and compassionate. Look the person in the eye and acknowledge them as a human being. For some people, that's a big event every day when one person acknowledges them. So that's one thing you can do to show your love and compassion by just acknowledging them, even if you have to say no. Or if you feel like you can do something but you can't do what they're asking for you to do, go ahead and offer what you think you're able to do. You can say, I'm, I'm not sure I can do that, but what I can do is, and offer it. But don't be surprised if they turn you down. And don't be offended if they turn you down. Because a lot of times people are in the moment. They have an immediate need, and they're just focused on that need. You know, they need gas money, they need this, they need this, they need this. And they may not, may not um, be so happy with you that you said that, you know, that you're offering them something they don't want. But that's okay. Again, acknowledge them as a human being. Look them in the eye. Show them that you care. And just be okay with it. And then walk away. And then let it go. Don't perseverate about it. Don't be thinking about it all the time. Did I do the right thing? Um, for years, I had a P.O. box, and I'd go into the post office. And, you know, if you go to the post office a lot, you meet all kinds of people. And oftentimes, they're asking for cash. And so what I would do is I'd, I'd see they were asking for cash, or I'd acknowledge them, say, hello, good morning, good afternoon, walk in the post office and just say um, to the Holy Spirit, guide me here. What should I do? What do I need to do? And then I try to be quiet, because that's the hardest part for me to hear the Holy Spirit, is I have to be quiet long enough to hear. And then I would do what, what I heard. So sometimes I would give cash. Sometimes I would go out and say, my husband and I give to the Mission and the Samaritan Inn, and those are both great agencies that may be able to help you. I'm unable to help you today, but I want you to know. Or because I know a lot of agencies in town, I might tell them about another agency, how to reach people, Usually I tell them they're really nice people over at Battered Persons Advocacy or whatever and, and stuff. But I still am acknowledging them as a human being because that's the first and most important thing that you can do is show your care and compassion by doing that. Um, you know, it's really important that you listen with your heart and not with your judgment. It's easy to listen with our judgment, but listen with your heart because it actually what they're asking you may not be what they really need and want because... It's important to know that throwing cash at a problem doesn't solve the underlying problem. It may help in the immediate, because we all need cash, we need gas money, we need this, we need that, but cash isn't going to solve the underlying problem that person has. What can make a difference is relationship. So there was a guy at the post office that was there a lot. And um, 
I would see him, and I gave him cash one day, and I thanked him because he always smiled and thanked people, even if they turned him down. He thanked people, and I said, thank you. I just so much appreciate that you smile and thank people that it just makes my day seeing you. He goes, and he was genuine about that. But I also was genuine in saying, I appreciate it, and I'm sure other people appreciate how you are. So I felt like I had a relationship with him. And one day we stopped to talk and asked him about his circumstances, and he told me about his circumstances, and we talked about his options and stuff. I don't know what he did with that information, but I felt like I had enough of a relationship that I could actually have that conversation with him, and it felt really good. And I still, I haven't seen him for a while because I don't go to the post office very often anymore, but when I'd see him, I'd wave, I'd talk to him. So even if the person doesn't respond to you kindly and welcomingly, um, it's okay, because you're doing what your Christian duty is, which is to reach out with love and compassion. But again, I just want to say, you have to give yourself permission to say no, or give yourself permission to do what you feel that you can do, and know that um, we're not all there for every person. It's okay if you're not the right person in that person's life today. If you know somebody that can help them, you can make a suggestion, you can talk to your friend or who you know and say, you know, this person might benefit from that. But the bottom line is you're trying to create a relationship, even if it's a micro-relationship on a micro-level in a moment in time by acknowledging that person's a human being, caring about them enough to show them that you, you see them. That's creating a relationship and it's a start of a relationship. And you never know. Some of those people who tell you where to go after you've said no will be the person who the next time you see them will still talk to you because they felt that human connection. So that's what I encourage you to do. And, and you know, it's important for about boundaries, but I'm not going to go into that because Melanie's going to talk about boundaries. But who else has something to add to what I said? Well, I won't do that either then. But I will just say it does have to do with some boundaries, but I'll leave that to Melanie. Uh, but, no, it's, it's, it's knowing you and knowing the person you're, you're working with, right? Knowing, knowing what you're capable of doing and knowing what you're not capable of doing. That's the best we can always know as helpers is who we are. And, when, and, and like she said, I love that you don't do it right away, that you pass by them and then give yourself a chance to hear from God. And that's great because sometimes my first thought is don't help, and that's just because I'm a selfish person. <laughs> but, but I do try to take that moment and, and stop and go. And there are times when I feel like, you know, even though I've, I, I've passed by the same guy ten times, in that one moment it felt right. And so you've got to do what you do is right, but you've got to know your boundaries so that you don't do what's not necessary, what they don't need. We don't want to fix the problem, or excuse me, try to put a Band-Aid on the problem. We want to know resources. You want to be able to, like Peggy, she's a, a wealth of information, but not all of us have as much information as, as she does. So know what's in our community is really uh, is the best way you could help somebody. Being able to maybe just you know, offer them uh, money for the bus so that they can get to one of these agencies that could properly help them. Or, uh, again, you know your boundaries, whether you're giving them money, putting them in your pickup and taking them yourself um, or, or whatever. And then, again, to finish off, I think I'm saying the same thing. Research says the number one predictor of lasting behavioral change is done in the context of relationship, whether it's 30 seconds of a relationship, a micro-relationship, like you said, or whether it's something you're going you're gonna to invest more into. But we only change as a human being. We only feel loved or we only see hope when, when someone does it in the context of a relationship with us. And so...
I'm going to tag in too and say it's really cool to see how some of you who have wanted to help somebody have been on a journey to learn what's available in our community. And you learn people you can ask, and it's really fun to say, I didn't know these people were doing this good work in our community. And so that's a fun journey to say, I don't know how to help you, but I'm going to try to find out. I know that you deal with some of the hardest hit folks, you know, with BPA and all that. One of the places I counsel a lot of was Foundation Fellowship, and they, they have, that's where the Dream Center is now. And so that was kind of like Homeless Central, and I was out of that building for about five years, and I got to know some of the, the downtown people. Um, everything you're saying is absolutely true. There's, and there's also, and, and just to throw this out there just because of who I am, um, there's a situational awareness you have to develop, and especially uh, for folks that pray and, and pay attention to what God is telling you, just keep your safety and theirs in mind. You know, because I've had people flip on me and literally flip out and attack and do an assault and you know that. I mean, so um, keep your safety and their safety in mind. Yeah, you you want to have a real situational awareness and be really prayed up um, more than anything else. Uh, and you're going to hear me hear this from me multiple times. Um, don't try to do all this by yourself. You know, I, I I'm I guess I'm trying to think of certain situations the context that you're doing this in. So, I just want to add one thing. I used to work with teen parents many years ago teaching classes, and um, I didn't feel very appreciated <laughs> most of the time because these, these young folks were pretty rebellious, didn't really want to be there. They had to be there in order to get their welfare money, so they were there, but they weren't there in spirit. And so I never knew if I was making an impact, but I tried to see each person as an individual and care about them as an individual. And then years later, there are multiple ones that I've run into on the street will come up to me and say, do you remember me? Do you remember me? And I'm like going, I'm mainly, yeah, you know, trying to place where I saw them. You were teaching that class, and you said this one thing, and I've always held on to it. And I've remembered that. Now my life is this, that, this is happening in my life, and so on. So you never know when that kindness that you've extended to somebody will pay off years from now. So we don't always see the payoff, you know? You may not know what happened to that person, but know that you're planting a seed when you show that kindness to them and that caring and love, and it may be the seed that got them moving to the next step. Good. That's good. Aren't you glad you're here? Uh, let's go on to the next question for Melanie. And can I tell them where you're from? Sure. Where you were born? Oh. <laughs> she was born in Australia, so you don't scratch your head and say, what's that accent? Now you can just listen to what she has to say because it's going to be great. Um, the next question is about boundaries. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what about boundaries? We've already heard uh, Clay say, my safety and the other person's safety, that's a boundary right there. I think this is unsafe. Um, but what are some good strategies for establishing healthy boundaries for myself and for others as I help? And, yeah, let's just start right there. So I wanted to talk about self-care, safety plans, and connections, and uh, and not just your physical safety, but I'm talking about your emotional safety, and that's um, where I set some of my own boundaries. So I, I know that these flowers might be distracting to some of you, so I just want to tell you this story. Um, I've had a hard week. I may cry right now. <laughs> um, and it's not, it's not all bad. There's very joyous things. Um, I'm just a crier, I guess. 
But part of my self-care is I'm a lavender farmer, and I discovered that touching the earth and the soil um, and the smell of flowers keep me present and grounded. And so this week, my husband knew that I needed flowers. So here they are. These are for my husband. But if they're a huge distraction, we can move them. Are they all good? Okay. So I thought, now that you know what they're for, they don't move them, Melanie. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But we can move them now. It was just the smell is like grounding. Um, so I guess, um, I mean, so that's touching on self-care. And I think that, you know, it's a buzzword right now um, in, in definitely social services. And uh, to me, that's unfortunate because self-care is more than just this word. It's like being self-aware and tapping into your person and knowing what is what is going to trigger you. Um, for me, it's like what makes me prickly um, and how do I stay grounded. And one of the things we talked about in our group was um, not depleting your own resources, whatever those resources are, um, so that you're not giving more than you should to be able to continue to help the next person, which may be yourself. Uh, and so, like I said, I have my self-care, and I hope that um, people find theirs sooner than being in their 40s. But <laughs> that safety plans are really important when you are interacting um, and helping people on a very regular basis. And it sounds like there are people in this room that are really passionate about being involved in their community regularly. So I actually carry my safety card on me every day. That's what this thing is right here. I was just telling Robert that coffee was on my safety card. Um, but one of the things that we talk about is not our physical safety, but our emotional safety. And if we're not emotionally present, um, how much help are we to somebody else? Yeah. And so establishing within yourself, the reason that we wear it um, is to remind ourselves, because we can quickly, um, I don't, you know, trip and stumble and not realize that we're frazzled or starting to make judgments or have bias because we're retreating because um, we're emotionally drained. Uh, and so really coming up with that plan and revisiting it, because it changes over time, um, and working on that plan and teaching our children how to use their own safety plans. And maybe that's not what you call it. Um, maybe you decide what what you want to call it, and I know some of you already have your plans, um, but revisiting it often is important. Tell me more about that before you go on. So yeah. uh, I see I'm getting depleted. You said don't deplete your resources so that you can't help the next person, which could even be yourself. So I see I'm, I'm getting depleted. I'm getting prickly. Uh, I'm, I'm being more tense with my children. Uh, I've got this plan. And so I go have some coffee. Or how? I guess what you're saying is it's things that will fill you up or recharge you or, or remind you of who you are? So your self-care plan is to recharge you and fill you up. Your safety plan is to ground you and pull you back into your frontal cortex. So that is a very quick, uh, you want it to be a quick transition. Um, so, you know, self-care is the thing that you're doing on a daily basis, but a safety plan may be, um, I just... I just met with somebody, um, and you really should take a moment, whether that's two minutes or half an hour, to to really 
ground yourself so it's not self care anymore it's safety like how do you emotionally take become safe again so for example on my safety plan walking is really important and so whatever helps you ground yourself sitting in silence whether you lock yourself in your car for two minutes so especially when you have children right and you have you know so so how do you you develop a safety plan with your spouse or your partner or whomever is your support person when raising your kids how do you tap in and tap out and use your plan and communicate your plan with one another so the people that I work with we will share our safety plans with one another so if I'm not self-aware of my emotional state somebody else who loves me can remind me to look at my plan and pick something good it's helpful yeah. you were going to say other things I interrupted you yeah so um, I think what's Im- important then which was just echoed was connection uh, and who do you process with like who is your mentor or uh, who is the person that you can check in with um, we talked about things like um, when it's challenging to help somebody reflecting on and asking yourself why am I helping this person is this a, is this for me or is this really for them and if you have a person that you can check in with and ask yourself those hard questions and just process those sometimes it can enlighten you as to the results that you may or may not get um, I think the other thing we talked about too is um, guilt and I and Peggy touched on that a little uh, when when you're feeling guilt around not helping or maybe you think about it and you would have done something differently and we know that guilt can eat you up and it's unhealthy and and so we address that and so who is your person who is your connection who do you go to so that you can process those things because it's it's all about relationship Excellent. Um, support system is the biggest thing you need. You need cheerleaders. You need a mentor that's going to, that, you, like you said, that can ask you the hard questions, but then you need to be able to, it's this fluid. You need to be pouring into people as someone's pouring into you, and you need a support system because a Lone Ranger never works. It just doesn't. Uh, we do best. He in, had Tonto, by the way. So In, in relationships. Yeah. Um, uh, it's kind of funny that we're talking about I don't know if I've ever shared this with you, but I got the blessed opportunity of doing my internship through Battered Persons Advocacy as I started my educational journey years ago. And in the process, I was uh, the children's ministry here. I was delivering pizza. I was uh, in my bachelor's degree. I was doing 20 hours a week of internship, and I was at the courts every morning at 7 doing learning um, restraining orders and, and, and working with real people with real situations and and I burned out and, and I took a week off and I disappeared and no one saw me <laughs> and, I, and it was the first time I had experienced this overwhelming sense of uh, of, of too many other people's hurts and, and, and I wasn't taking care of my own and so uh, man valuable lesson 
valuable lesson for me, and then uh, it's really important to me now to make sure that I'm always grounded. And what do you do to stay grounded, whether you're a lavender farmer or whether you like to go running or like to go golfing or uh, or spend time with your family or or your grandchildren? What what is it that's going to keep you in the moment and present? Um, I I think is extremely, extremely important. Um, Yeah, I think that's all I wanted to add to that. Anything else, Clay or Peggy, about boundaries? You know, you have to really know yourself going back to this because I don't do, I didn't through my career do a lot of direct client services. I did do them at various times, but what I found is it hurt my heart so much that I wasn't finding a way to take care of myself. So I learned that about myself and found that my skills and talents are more towards administration, making things happen, that sort of thing. So it's important if you aren't feeling that that's where you belong, that you acknowledge it because there are plenty of ways to help and not always is it direct service. Sometimes you're the support person helping the person doing the direct service or the listening ear or providing support. So it's always important that's that boundary again is to know yourself. I know myself. I can, I hurt. It's such a deep pain when I hear people's stories over and over again. I can hear people, I can work with individuals, but to do it as a constant job was very unhealthy for me personally. And I never found my way to where I could do that on a constant everyday basis. But I recognized where my skills and strengths were, and one of them was supporting the people who were doing that work every day. So it's okay if you're asked to do something or volunteer and you say, really, that's not me? Just say, you know, that's not me. But I do know that I have some skills where I could be supportive and helpful because there's a role for everybody. So that's back to that boundary again. And back to the first question, too, of I can't do this, but I can do that. I need to ask a question um, because is this like talking about people who are at risk? I mean, is that the kind of thing that is in, you know, can I get an idea of what people are thinking of when we're talking about reaching out without burning out? What kind of population are we looking at? Because for me, it becomes contextual. Am I working with kids? Okay. At-risk youth, what else? What else is out there? At-risk families, okay. Foster kids and and stuff like that. I'm cheating because I know you guys. Um, Okay, so that kind of thing. So we're we have folks at, here that work with uh, the, those incarcerated and those getting out of prison. Okay. Uh, we have folks here working with children at elementary schools. And, and, and people that have trauma and oh, all yeah. that kind of thing. That's my next and, question. Actually, you're leading your perfect setup, Clay. And it, and it is because this all segues together. And, and I'm starting. To, but I wanted to see like who we're who we're talking about because. Say again. Veterans in the medical setting. Okay. Okay. Absolutely. Um, all of those are like at-risk populations, basically. You're putting yourself in a situation where you're reaching out of your comfort zone. And I don't know about you all, but anytime I reach out, I like to know somebody's got my back. And so you're going he- to hear a lot of that. Is You know, you're, you need a mentor. You need somebody tying there. You know, I- I've done search and rescue stuff with white water and all that. You don't go in the water without a rope or the right kind of gear on. You just don't, unless you want to be a statistic. And so if you don't want to burn out, you really... The boundaries are having people that can look at you and go, ah, mm, Clay, bad idea. <laughs> don't do not do that. You're, you're at risk there. You're, you're burning out. Okay? You need people around you that know you well enough in the circumstance that you're in to kind of check each other's gear and see how you're doing. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. 
Let's talk about trauma. Uh, she mentioned that self-care is a buzzword. Another buzzword I've heard a lot is trauma-informed. Uh, if you are any, anyone heard that phrase before? Show of hands. Probably half of you. Um, to me, to the layperson not involved in social services per se, uh, here's what resonates with me. Uh, I think of all the ways that past hurts in my life come come back to mind and how I can't just say I'm going to get over my past. I have to go back to that and deal with it to be able to help out now. It's not just enough just shut it, shove it down, you know, to go back and deal with what happened in the past helps me in the present. And there's probably a whole lot more you guys know about it. So my question for Robert um, and for all of, all of my panel is, how, how can we develop more compassion? We use that word compassion at the beginning of the night. That's one of God's primary characteristics towards people who have experienced trauma. I do have some of your slides here. So, Well, uh, if possible, would it be Oh, yeah. Would it be possible to watch that little two-minute video? We can watch the video. Are we ready on the computer sound, Ben? I think this would be a really important yeah, video to jump watch ahead to the end here. As we develop, our brain produces 250,000 neurons every minute. By birth, we'll have 100 billion of these miraculous building blocks. But in order for our brains to fully function, we'll need synaptic connections to organize and build networks. Who we become and how we function depends entirely on how these networks develop, and our interactions with others and how we've been treated determines everything. From functions like heart rate, breathing and basic emotions, to personality, decision-making, language, social behavior, and voluntary movement. We know that severe or prolonged abuse or neglect derails that building process, even in the womb. Distress and high anxiety in the mother allows cortisol, the stress hormone, to cross the placenta and disrupt development. When the toxic stress response is activated repeatedly, brain development and even immune systems are disrupted. Research has shown that high doses of stress hormones inhibit brain function and impulse control, overbuilding the fear center and the part of the brain that's critical to emotional regulation. TBRI uses three sets of principles to begin the healing caused by toxic stress. By recreating the developmental process, TBRI strives to introduce the nurturing that was absent in those toxic situations. And for the child who has endured toxic stress, healing must begin with a sense of both physical and emotional safety, something this child may have never known. Connecting principles are designed to create and nurture healthy relationships through sensitivity, consistency, and availability to disarm fear and gain trust. Giving full attention, using a gentle voice and kind facial expressions and body language are just a few of the ways to help build trust. Punitive and controlling responses only feed a child's mistrust and fear. Empowering principles are designed to meet physical needs, including sensory regulation, nutrition, and hydration, and strive to be aware of environmental issues, such as overstimulation by light, noise, or smells that can trigger behaviors that often leave caretakers baffled. The goal of the correcting principles is to help guide a child through day-to-day strategies by correcting fear-based behaviors and establishing felt safety, helping a child regulate their emotions, tell their stories, and learn through playful engagement. The Adverse Childhood Experiences study examined the effects of multiple types of abuse in childhood, and the staggering results showed that high doses of childhood adversity affect brain development drastically, 
leading to addictions, attempts at self-medication, impacted immune systems, chronic inflammation, and autoimmune diseases. The greater the number of traumatic events, the greater the damage. TBRI can help stop this ugly cycle. There is hope for the damaging effects of toxic stress, but it will take dedication, education, and most of all, understanding. Okay, so we got a dose of compassion just watching that, understanding that, yeah. And whether you're working with children or whether you're working with a middle school or a high schooler or I'm working with middle-aged and older men and having to do this because what's happening when you have stress, when you have trauma, when something's happened in the past, it's a brain hurt. And we can't just pick ourselves up by our bootstraps. We can't just get over it. We can't just do it because we want to. There's a healing process that has to happen, and it takes a period of time, and there's got to be a safe environment for that healing and that trauma to be dealt with and coped and walked through. And so uh, we can can deal with trauma 30 years later and not even know it's there by a simple smell or sound. Um, I have a client that allowed me to use a story, but it's by a simple smelling the popcorn took him back to nine years old, 30 years ago in Pleasanton, California, where a shooting happened at a fairgrounds and, and one of his family members got shot. Very traumatic incidents, not giving it a whole lot of thought the majority of his life, and yet here's the smell of popcorn one day. Um, at the age of 35, and it took him right there, and he had about a 25-minute episode. Trauma is a real thing that we can't just say, I'm going to wake up and be better tomorrow. <laughs> and, and so being really trauma-informed and understanding anybody that we're working with, um, empathy's got to be your number one skill. That's what I tell everyone I work with. If you learn anything, just learn this, empathy, how to walk a mile in somebody else's shoes, really understand what they may have gone through, what they may not have healed yet. I have guys that come into my office and they're just like, I've been told that i got to be here and I'm judged. Blah, blah, blah. I don't look at them as an angry guy. I look at them as a person who's upset with the situation. And, and so when we're working with people, especially those that have been hurt, those that are struggling, those that have gone through trauma, I tell my parents that I work with, don't look at the child and its behavior. Look at the little child behind the behavior. Don't look at the man who's not at his best right now, but look at the little boy. 78% of all men that have gotten themselves in jail and done something dumb were a little child that was abused once. Almost 80% of us that have done something dumb as adult were once a child that was things were done to us. And so when do we stop looking at some of our adults as those that have gone through some really hurt? So just really having some education. You know, I mean, we do a lot of trauma-informed training at our agency, and I think it's important whether you're working with a child at the gospel mission, as a teacher in a classroom, as a pastor in the health profession, I, we've got to understand what trauma does to our system, to our brain. We're a chemical factory, and until that gets healed, we continue to produce the chemicals that are going to kill us. I mean, that ACEs survey is astounding, um, the amount of people that are dying early just simply because of unresolved trauma and stuff that hasn't been healed and dealt with. And so um, uh, having some education and some compassion and just understanding that, you know, today's research says we're about 74, 75% of us have either had a one-time or secondary or repeated trauma. And so in this room, you could probably say, you know, there's a lot of us that have somebody we know or maybe even ourselves. You know, I particularly went through a lot of childhood trauma, and that's why I'm doing what I'm doing now and want to and help as much as I can because it's not just going, okay, I want to help. What can I do? 
I want to do this. It's, it's really understanding who you are and how you can help and understanding the people across the table or at your doorstep or in your agency, really understanding what trauma does. And when they have a safe environment where they can feel trusted, all getting all of that stuff we were supposed to get in that first couple of years of life, they didn't get. And so uh, when, when they can come to a place and feel safe and, and walk their story, then that's the first step first step of healing, you know, because again, in the context of a relationship, somebody can heal. So So what I'm hearing is trauma is a big deal. I can't just get over it with just willpower. Um, there is hope, though, and help. Uh, and the best thing that I, who am not a therapist or a counselor, uh, can do is to love and accept somebody and be willing to walk alongside them through some tough stuff. Am I hearing you right? Okay. Absolutely. Um, I, I have to bring this up. Uh, years ago, do, uh, Dr. Bruce Perry, who is a neuropsychiatrist, he studies uh, brain development and, and the effects of trauma, neglect, and, and abuse on brain development. And so he has actual pictures of brains developing where they look like Swiss cheese because they were abused or neglected, depending on which part of the brain was being stimulated at which part of development. And when uh, they had the Waco, everybody remember that horrible thing? All the kids that came out of Waco landed at his treatment center down in Texas, and they studied that whole crew of kids who are all severely traumatized, neglected, abused. They took pictures of the brains. They studied the whole thing. It's a phenomenal body of research. And what he described to 500 educators in South County, it was 2005, I think, um, what he described was that you need an intergenerational safe, secure, multi-generational, and I looked at the title of that, and it was Trust-Based Relational Intervention. And as he was describing that, I thought, you know, it sounds like a great, big, healthy, extended family. You know, a big, healthy church. You know, for some that run well. And you know what I mean? And that was, you know, that's where people have longed for generations, centuries, have found healing in large groups of people. When the war-torn come back, they get involved in their community. We've had PTSD around for David probably had PTSD. You could, if you look at David's life, he, he was war-torn, you know, for, for the, you know, speaking for the vets. Um, but it's the community that comes around them and how we develop that and then being very intentional about that. Am I speaking to the same kind of... Anybody from the right side of the table or le- their left want to add to that? Yes, okay, true. Time is important, yeah. Yeah, and uh, I have I love the quotes. I will come back to that slide if we have time to come to the quotes. Good. Um, Clay is my next question. How can I keep from burning out when I feel like I'm on the roller coaster with someone uh, that's challenging? I feel like it's a roller coaster. I'm just like, get me off this ride. Uh, oh, that, that answer. I was going to say, do you like roller coasters? You know, maybe for like three minutes. Some of us do it because we enjoy the ride. Yeah. I like being with kids and, and kids that are like out there because I was there. I, I know the roller coaster. Uh, what I've learned as an adult is don't go on the roller coaster by yourself if you don't like them. <laughs> Make sure you got an exit plan to get off the roller coaster if you get queasy. Um, you know, I, I like working with kids that are at risk. I like, wor- I like getting them out on ropes and, and climbing and backpacking and stuff like that because I, I can control the environment and it's easier to do that than control them if you know what I'm talking about. Um, when you, you know, you got to decide how much of a ride you're willing to go on. I mean, this comes back to boundaries. It's just another, to me, another variation of boundaries. Do you like roller coasters? If you like roller coasters, then jump in the boat with a bunch of crazy kids and have a ride. I'm thinking of Yaku right now. Because he likes working with at-risk kids, and, and he's well-suited to it. 
you know, he gets it, he understands it. So again, knowing yourself really well and knowing when you go, ah, no, I'm not getting on that roller coaster. Um, it, it's not your roller coaster. Part of self-care is saying, not my monkeys, not my circus. That's not my problem. And if you feel yourself getting pulled into it where you're going, I, I really don't want to be on this, you've got to have safety nets. And that's where I, I'm a huge believer. If you're, if you're at all doing anything with at-risk people, if you're doing it by yourself, you're, you're at risk. You're at risk of not being able to get off the roller coaster if you find out you're on one. Because sometimes you're working with people and you ask a couple questions, and next thing you know, you're on a ride, you're going, this is not what I expected. How do I, how do I stop? And so I, I'm real big on having safety plans and you know phone numbers that you can get to. Um, I've met with a huge variety of Rose, the range of Roseburg, and, and there's, there's truly dangerous people where if you don't have a good safety plan, you can find yourself at risk. There are kids that don't have control because of trauma. That if you get a kid that's seriously triggered in the wrong situation, I've watched, I've watched nine-year-olds pick up a school desk and throw it at the teacher <laughs> 20 feet away. You know, it's sad to say I've seen it more than once. So, it, um, have a, have a network of people that are all going the same direction and can help you. I see a couple people in this room. I see I've seen people at Winchester Elementary. You got you got some tag teaming, and you it's not good cop bad cop, but it's uh, good cop good cop. Uh, anyway, yeah. they help each other. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah, please, Melanie. Yeah. Oh. You get your own mic, though. That is Robert's mic. You may not have that microphone. But he let me borrow it. Okay. He All was right. sharing. All right. Am I holding it correctly? Excellent. I'm, I yes. feel like I have to hold it like this because he said we can't hold it like an ice cream, and I don't want to yeah. be tempted to lick it because yeah. he said we can't do that either. Yeah. So <laughs> good. I'm just Perfect. trying to be good. Yeah. I think, um, so if we're going to use the analogy of a roller coaster, I'd also say that, um, you know, if you have patience, the roller coaster stops eventually. And so if you can be present with someone long enough, the roller coaster will stop. Um, I've worked with a lot of kids, and eventually they get tired throwing things at you. And if you can be calm and stable, um, it stops, and, and they'll be insight into what's really happening, and kids will open up. And I think that's what Robert's talking about, too, in creating safe spaces and just being present. So, Peggy has a good comment from our earlier discussion about uh, chaos, the chaos some people live with and that creating a roller coaster. And you want to say anything about, about chaos? Well, many of us live in chaos at various times in our lives. Um, we've experienced chaos, but often you'll find that people you're working with experience chaos on an almost daily basis, if not daily basis. In fact, sometimes you may have the thought that when there isn't chaos, they create the chaos. And it's not because they're creating chaos, but they've become comfortable as children with craziness around them, with crazy, chaotic behavior, chaotic people, and they're not seeing it the same way that you're seeing it. And so, um, but that chaos also makes people make decisions that you're thinking, why did they do that? Why would you spend your last $10 on well, an example is I used to work at the self-sufficiency program, and every year after the county fair, people would come in and say, I have no money, I can't pay my rent or utilities. And you're like going, what, what, what happened? We went to the fair. I took my kids to the fair. Now, it's easy to judge people and say, 
You took your kids to care fair instead of saving the money for your utilities or rent. But think about it for a minute. For one minute, that family wanted to feel like their neighbors down the street, like everybody else, and have a life like everybody else has. And so they did the thing that they thought would make their kids feel I don't want to use the normal, but feel like they belong and that they're part of society and that they have the normal things that other people in society have. So to you, that may seem not really a great idea, but in the moment, it made perfect sense to them. And their kids may have lasting memories that are really positive from that. And it may have been very nurturing to that family in one way. It doesn't mean they don't have problems later because <laughs> they don't have the money to pay their bills. But it, so, so you just have to think about that chaos that people experience it so different and the way they cope with it is so different and it's not going to be the way that you cope with chaos. It just isn't, mm-hmm. which leads us to... The next question, <laughs> which is Peggy's question also while you've got the mic. And don't let Melanie take it from you because she's using Robert's mic apparently. Um, how, how do I reach out to somebody in love when I don't agree with the lifestyle choices they're making, the fair, the I went to the casinos, I whatever. I, I say I don't know if I want to help that person because I don't I don't like some things they're doing. I come from public health, so when I see somebody smoking, my judgment sign goes on in my head. Why are they smoking? It's bad for them. But if you watch somebody that smokes, what's what is it you see? That first drag and that cigarette. <sighs> that might be their one moment of peace throughout the day is when they have that cigarette. So I have to talk to myself about not judging and, um, and, and realizing that that cigarette is meeting a need for them in the moment. Um, so I think, I think for me the most important thing to remember is when we're helping people, if you go into a situation where you want to help them, in other words, fix them, fix the situation, make it right, and everything, you're likely to end up frustrated over time. Um, You may even come to resent the situation and so on. So my best thought is walk alongside people. Accept them for where they're at. They're not where you are at. They've had different life experiences. They were raised a different way. They may have childhood trauma that hasn't been resolved. They may have other needs that you don't know about. We are complicated. You saw that whole thing. That was really complicated. I was struggling to follow the whole thing. It's complicated. We are complicated people. So um, you don't, it's easy to judge and say, shouldn't be doing this. But when you hear that should in your mind, or it's starting to come out of your mouth, that's when you stop it and say, wait, that's not my job is to judge them. My job is to walk alongside people. It's easier when you walk alongside them. Granted, it's a lot harder to walk alongside family and friends. So if you're feeling like you need, somebody feels like they need to put a boundary on their adult child and say you can't live here anymore, that is really hard. I'm acknowledging that is very hard. But it doesn't mean it's the wrong decision. But the important thing in the helping profession, at least with the work that you're doing, is walking alongside people, accepting them where they're at, um, and finding a way to relate them, because I'm going right back to relationships. There is something about that person that you can relate to, something. Mm -hmm. Maybe you both like football. Maybe you both like to take walks. Maybe they have kids in school and you had kids in school once. Um, But if you talk to them, just talk, just have a conversation, 
What do you like to do? What fills your day? What's going on? Have a casual conversation, which isn't about fixing. This is about creating relationship. You'll find something that you have in common. You may actually find that you have a lot of things in common. Um, And so build on your relationship by focusing on those things that you have in common, particularly those things that are positive and moving forward. So if they tell you your life story and all the trauma, that doesn't mean you need to tell your life story and all your trauma because that actually traumatizes you again and it traumatizes them. I'm talking about finding those other kind of commonalities that are everyday stuff, like you have a new neighbor and you remark about their dog. What a cute dog you have. You know, and start talking about the dog you had. So some way that you can create a relationship that feels like it's a mutual relationship. It's not like you're one up on them, but you actually are right here. So I happen to be allergic to lavender, Melanie, but I do respect that you're a lavender fiber. And tell me more about that because I'm really curious. So find something positive that you can relate to um, with them. Um, yeah, and then build on that so that each time you're meeting with them or seeing them you can build a little bit you spend that first five minutes on those feel good, positive, good things that you have in common um, remember to listen, listen, listen the message they're giving you may not be what they really are feeling or what they really need they're telling you they may tell you surface stuff Keep listening because eventually you'll hear where the hole in their heart is, where the holes in their lives are. And while it may seem like it's about stuff most of the time, money, cars, transportation, housing, and stuff, oftentimes the people's holes in the heart are that childhood trauma that's not been mended. It's about not having somebody who just cares about them and respects them as a human being. So listen for those holes in their heart that you can start building building your relationship. You're not going to fill all the holes, but you will start building that relationship with them. So this does take time and it does take patience. You know? So whatever your relationship is, the first few times you're with somebody, you may not feel like you got anywhere with whatever your goal was. <laughs> and remember, it might not even be their goal because you haven't listened enough, so keep listening. So um, just again, anytime you hear that should, stop yourself, because if it was you in that person's um, place, you may be doing the same behaviors that they're doing. Mm-hmm. If you would live, born, raised, thought, had that trauma, whatever, there but by the grace of God go I. So... Be thinking of it that way and just walk alongside people. You'll be amazed what walking alongside people can do for creating relationships and starting the healing process. Before Robert, just I'm guessing, I'm just going to throw this out there, I'll make a huge generalization and see if you agree or not. Most people would probably rather have, if they could choose between somebody that always did exactly what they asked, which is nice to have a genie in a bottle, I guess, or somebody that loved and accepted them for who they were, they'd probably want the second. So even if I can't do everything that somebody asked me to do, if I can love and accept them, and I also learned a difference between acceptance and approval, I wouldn't maybe do what you were doing or approve of your actions, but I can still accept you as a person and love you, and, and you're a valid person with a right to, to choose, and I'm going to accept you. So, so when you're feeling that... Yeah. When you feel that burning out, it means you're doing more in the relationship than that person is? So that's a clue that it's not 
The relationship is not mutual. So when you're feeling that burnout, step back a little bit and ask yourself what's going on with you. Because if you don't take care of yourself... And he's, he's asking for more than you it want It feels to like a deep hole that you can't fill. It, does that... Is that... Yeah. Sometimes that is... No, and you need to show that love and compassion. It doesn't mean that you do everything the person asks you to do. Because it's not healthy for you... And chances are it's not healthy for them. No, no, this is good. No, go ahead. No, it's... You're bringing up real life, real stuff that people face. Robert, do you... One of the hardest things I've ever done in my life, and it was two years ago, I had to kick my son out of my house. And it was... It was really hard. And... But I had crossed the boundary too many times and wasn't doing any good for him, no matter how much I loved him, no matter how much I helped him. And again, I'm not saying that's what you got to do. I'm just saying for me and my boundaries, I had to come to terms. The only way for my son to be able to do and, and learn a little bit was for me to um, some set some boundaries. And, and I'm very thankful now because here I am two years later and he's finally doing those things on his own, not having to have somebody like, uh, you know, helicopter parent like I was, <laughs> you know, and... and because I, I think part of it was I had to do the hard thing. And sometimes as helpers, as parents, as grandparents, as people, um, uh, we're going to give and we're going to give. And, and we have to step back, like Peggy says, and, and maybe ask, where am I giving too much? Or where am I helping and it's not helping? What am I do? Sometimes stepping back. That's one of the hardest things in the world is that where's that line where, you know, if I'm helping somebody, I'm actually crippling them. You know, we're actually, you know, I'm carrying them instead of letting them walk and strengthen their legs no matter how painful it might be. And especially with our kids, we don't want to see them hurt. I know I don't. And usually you know that after you've stepped, gone too far. Yeah, <laughs> you, you usually don't up. know it before you've gone too far. You know it when you've gone too far and you have that feeling that this isn't working. I've given this person everything I can give and it's not enough because you may not be the right person to help that person go the next step. And if you can accept that, you may not be the right person. It's a little easier to let go. It doesn't mean you stop loving the person. It doesn't mean you tell them that you don't care. It means you show them that you care and you love them. But you may not be the right person. Like Robert said, he had to tell his son. It could be Robert wasn't the right person to help his son at that particular time, and he needed to let go so the child could find the way themselves or find another person who can help them. So it is the hardest thing with family, absolutely the hardest thing. And like I said, you usually don't know till you've gone past that, that line because you don't know where the line is till you've been over it. <laughs> and so that's okay, though, because then you recognize it's time for me to do something else, which could be all kinds of things, but to do something else. Is that helpful? Can I quote Peggy also? She told me something about seven years ago that I remember really uh, poignantly. She said, the same activity that you would do to help somebody at a certain point in the relationship might be really empowering. I give somebody a ride to the store. Uh, If I'm doing that same action years later, it might be enabling them. So over time, the way we react changes. It might be the most important thing to give them a ride to wherever or to give them that money, but later it might not be helpful. I almost think of like a, if we have a healthy body and we're trying to recover from a, from a broken leg, at some point the cast has to come off. At some point the crutches have to go away, and I've got to strengthen that leg up. But the crutches were great at the beginning, and they aren't so great three years later. 
Um, that's very true, but it again comes with experience and living through it that you find out where that's at, because um, it 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 is very different empowering and enabling. Not that enabling is bad, because doing something for someone can be the right step to help them move forward, but doing it over and over again and there's no change and nothing is happening. It means you have to do a different activity. It's just like that little saying about there's a hole in the sidewalk and you keep every time you keep walking and stepping into the hole, at some point you have to walk around the hole in the sidewalk. When you recognize that you are stepping in that hole over and over and over again, you can't change that person's behavior. You can only change yours and your reaction to what's going on. And so it might be hard to figure out what that step is. It's very granted. It may be very hard. Sometimes you need somebody you can work with you and help you think through and see where that step is. But you want, need to at some point walk around the hole instead of stepping into it. And that other person may not be capable of stopping what they're doing. They are still stepping in the hole no matter what. So I, I don't know that that's helpful, but I'm trying to put some images out there where you can kind of see a different way to be and that sometimes it takes a change for change to happen. Can I, the last thing on the parent-child dynamic. There's a, a thing that I heard years ago, I don't even know where I got it, but about authority and responsibility. And, you know, able to respond. At the point that I'm taking over something that somebody should be able to respond to, and I'm saying no, you know, at some point the kid has authority over their own life. And if they're not able to respond to something, I mean, they're truly not. They're crippled or they're injured or, you know, they can't uh, for whatever reasons there might be. Then, you know, they may need you to have authority in their life to take, take that over. But if they're able to respond and we don't let them and we don't say take authority over your life, be res- respond for yourself. Does that make sense? Am I, or am Cause that's, and that's a hard one. I mean, I've got a daughter where I had to go, you're going to make that choice. Then you're, gonna, you're, you're saying you want authority over that. Then you are now responsible for everything that comes out of that. You know, and, and I had to watch. And she, if I tried to help her, it would have crippled her for her life. And it was very painful. <laughs> Following up on the, on the judgment question, I, I, I'm judging this person's actions. You know, I want to help them, but I don't like what they're doing. Uh, I have a question from Melanie about believing somebody. I know that I'm supposed to believe somebody. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I'm supposed to believe what they're telling me, but what should I do if I feel like they're embellishing or they're making stuff up? I doubt the credibility of what someone's saying. So I believe that my response, and I'm just going to speak for myself because I think everybody can do it their way. Like everyone has a way that works for them, but this is just my way that works for me. Uh, so the response is more important than whether I believe somebody or not. And how I make someone feel when they leave me and our, and our time together is more important than whether I believe what they're telling me or not. Um, and so I started what we, in this the work that I do now that can be very difficult, as some of you have not acknowledged, um, uh, I just started drawing upon my experience in customer service because you have people that return things to the store or um, there's some misunderstanding about what they ordered. And in customer service, whether you believe them or not, you listen and then you help 
find the solution so that your customer leaves happy. I'm like, well, maybe this is, maybe if I could just think of it uh, being this black and white, maybe that'll work for me. Um, and, and, you know, I have, have grown and shifted and it's definitely more complicated than that. But it's, um, but that helped me sort of shift my perspective a little bit. And I think what I've learned um, in working with survivors in particular is that they may be confessing something to you and that's their perspective um, or that's how they remember it. And if it is something that's traumatic, it, there are some things that people tell you that seem surreal um, or, or, things, or there's a timeline and the timeline doesn't match up. Um, and when someone's experienced trauma, then they, their memory is not, um, it's not as clear to them. And so I have to remember those things. Uh, I think that going back to how people feel is when, when we part ways, um, I know I want people to leave feeling like hope and comfort. I don't want them feeling shame and guilt that they just opened up to me or shared something with me and I just made them feel like they were a liar. Um, and, you know, there's... Um, my my son has certainly taught me a lot, speaking about sons. <laughs> um, you know, he... he They were little white lies. Like, I just... It never made sense to me. Like, um, like why he didn't take his key to school. He was making me crazy. Um, and we realized that for him... That was uh, that was the only way he could stay safe in his home was to lie, because um, if he told the truth about putting his pants in the washing machine, he could have been beaten. And so it was like, but he didn't want to share those things with me, and I'm not going to pry those things from him. But so I had to really wait. Um, and whether so, whether it's you know, your friend em- embellishing a story because that was their perspective and they're excited, or it's somebody that you're helping that may not want to, sh- maybe can or cannot share all of their story. It's just how they feel when they leave. Mm-hmm. That's important. If I can put it into a biblical perspective for a second, I like to do that once in a while. It's the what we do at our agency. It's the woman at the well experience. It's it's not. It's whether I, 95% of the people I work with, I don't agree, or they're or, or they're in a spot where they're not able to to completely share the truth or completely be the best versions of them. And so, that's that that doesn't sway me. It's my job to create an environment and a situation safe enough for them to be themselves eventually, whether it happens there in that moment or it happens 10 weeks from now but uh it's actually it, when when the woman at the well ran away from the well she's like oh let me tell you about this guy who knew everything about me and that's what we want people to walk away from us let me tell you about this woman that just sat and listened to me oh my gosh let me tell you about this guy just listen to my story let me tell you about this woman who even though i yelled half the time she just sat there and listened and even asked me if i wanted a cup of coffee it's just being, again, I'm going to say this because I promised to myself I'd say it at least twice. Research says the number one predictor of lasting behavioral change is only done in the context of a safe environment and relationship. Relationship, relationship, relationship. It takes a relationship. So it's not for us to judge or try to figure out why they might be not telling the truth or sharing everything. Maybe everything's not adding up. I, I found out if I just be with them, 
if I just allow them to be them, those things, those things, they start to find ways to get skills to not have to do that. Because again, she said the magical, the, the word is, I lied because that was the way I used to feel safe. That's the way my brain works. And so I can't just turn my brain off. It's developed over a long period of time. And, and so we all do automatic behaviors until we feel safe enough to learn to do different. And it takes time, too. And it's not just overnight. It takes a long time to change behavior patterns, you know. I'm working with a child right now who just won't stop putting food under the bed. You know, a foster child. And, and parents are getting upset, you know, because uh, we're wasting food, we're wasting money, it's, it's molding, it stinks, and, and uh, we, we provide for you. You don't, have to, you don't have to worry. It's a safe environment. It's, we got your back. But you can't tell this child's brain that because it's been through hurt. And he had to keep food under the bed just to stay safe whenever situations arrived a few years back. And so uh, we, we don't need to try to figure them out or judge them. We just need to be with them. And, and through, the, through a relationship, um, people get hurt, but through the relationship, people heal. People heal. One of the dynamics, I think... We'll take a question after this, so we'll take questions here. Go ahead. Yeah. Just one of the dynamics to point out that in, in, a, in a relationship where you've got a, a, a kid or you've got um, a vet or somebody, pro- providing that listening ear and being able to just listen to them, it actually... And I believe this is something that God designed into us to respond. So whether somebody believes or not, I think this dynamic happens. It says, confess your faults to one another. And the word faults is, is like anything that's not the way God designed it, which kind of counts all of the world in some ways. Do you, you know what I mean? Um, and to one another. And pray for one another that you may be healed. God ties our ability to heal from these trauma to the ability to be able to talk about it so I can talk about the faults that are really there. Does that, does that make sense? Because if I can't talk about them, then I can't do anything about them. And if I don't know, I can't pray. So if I want to pray effectively, I need to know what's going on. And that's where the relationship comes in, is we have to, you know, as, as a therapist, what I would, my whole practice became to create by using my body and my face and not reacting to things where I, I, I've heard things that just made me want to gag and, and cry. But to not react was one of the things I had to train to do, to be able to keep calm. And for me, that became a focus. I had to be very calm and certain about where I was with, with the Lord. With, with some of the things that I've heard and listened to uh, from what's happened to Douglas County, um, if, if you aren't really well grounded in the Lord or whatever you believe in that keeps you there, you're, you're going to get, well, you're going to get overwhelmed, but you need... I don't know. I just really encourage you to keep the relationship with God really well. If you're dealing with kids that are in real trauma, you really got to hang on to God. You know, because it, it's a crazy. I have two more questions, but you probably have more than two more, two questions. I want to make sure we get to your questions. So if we get time, we'll come back to my last two I put on the list. What's going on in your mind? What What are you wondering about? What do I do if if they're just refuse to be honest with me about what's true for them? That may never happen <laughs> um, for some of those that don't have that ability or some of those that have been hurt and put up so many walls that there's going to be a lot of fences you're going to have to get through before I'm ever going to be able to be honest with you. So what can we do? We continue to offer the safe environments, but with boundaries. We, we, we don't overhelp. We don't help where it's not needed. We don't 
if they're not being honest and we don't put ourselves in a situation where we're going to keep getting our hands slapped, you know, again, but we still, we still love with compassion and understanding because, again, uh, I guess I'm going to say it three times, uh, research says the number one predictor of lasting behavioral change. How do you change a person? How do you help them become honest? By being in a relationship with them, by allowing them to feel safe. Because, again, why are they not being honest? Because somewhere back here in their story, something happened and there wasn't a safe environment for them, so they had to start lying. And so until they can feel that availability to do, to be honest over time, they'll, they'll, that's it. <laughs> I lied about the color of the sky because it just was easy to lie because I had developed that in my brain for so long. It was what kept me safe in my younger years. And so the best way we can help somebody to be honest with you is just to, to be a, a, a relationship for them until they're able to do that. And it might take one day and it might take one year. It might take 10 years. But uh, if we do our job right, I truly believe if we do our job right with compassion, empathy, and understanding and providing that relationship, whether we've stop giving them the money but still offer the support and the love we still offer the love and support that's what they need that's what's going to be that's we may be the one relationship speaking of bruce perry his quote he just said the other day we may be the one relationship that very well changes the trajectory of their life because we are neurobiologically designed to do relationships I just want to say fear is a strongly motivating factor in people's lives. So if they're afraid that if they tell you the truth that the $40 you gave them for gas money went to lottery tickets, they're not going to tell you they spent it on lottery tickets because they're afraid that you will walk away from them. So one of the strengths that you can show them as a volunteer is walking with them, but you may not be giving them $40 the next time, but you're still walking with them and when they say, how am I going to get there? I, you didn't give me gas money. Well, what are some other options in, for you in the community? Let's think through some other options. So it doesn't mean that you give, give, give when way past the time that is productive and useful, but it doesn't mean you give up on the person because as, if they're fearful that you're going to reject them, People will tell you anything to keep you from rejecting them. If they're desperate enough for money, they'll tell you anything. And I would tell you anything. I'm not talking about other people. I'm talking about us up here. We would all tell you anything if we were fearful that you wouldn't help us or that that caring compassion you showed me would go away if I told you the truth. I'm not going to tell you the truth. And I think if we looked in our own hearts, everybody looked in their own hearts, they'd say, there are times when I didn't feel I could be totally honest because I was afraid I'd lose a relationship. So, But that's good news because if that person wants that relationship so bad, they're willing to lie to you, you have a spark of something that you can work with. It's slow, but it means they care enough about you. The people who who then just say you go to wherever and walk out on you because you didn't give them more money, that's what they chose to do. It doesn't mean they won't come back, though. They may come back because they may have that need for you to say that one nice thing to them. Because in a lot of people's lives, there aren't very many nice people. And especially in a lot of people's lives, family isn't very nice to them. So... You just have to hold out to your standard, which is caring compassion, and offer it and have it out there and accept the choices they make. They, they have the right to make those choices, but you're still feeding that seed, that seed of love and compassion and 
Um, you know, I mean, that's how I, I look at it is fear is so motivating that people will do anything out of fear, anything out of fear. So that's helpful. Well, and I think of, you know, like when with kids or, or and I've, I've done work with PTSD vets and, and with families and kids, and, and the guiding thing to me is being able to speak the truth in love. Um, and, and that's harder than it is to say. Um, that means long-suffering and patience and kindness and that whole list of what love actually is in action. But I have to be able to speak the truth, which includes saying, I can't do that. I can't violate my own beliefs or conscience to take that step to do this for you. And then, you know, because that's the truth. And I'm saying it with love. I, if I find that I'm not able to say the truth with love, I'm saying it out of anger or frustration or out of pain, then, I, then, I, then that tells me there's something going on with me I need to deal with. And that's the self-care thing. I need to be able to say, whoa, okay, I've I got to be honest with you. If the next thing I say is not going to be good, I have to walk away right now. That may be the, the most loving thing you can do in some situations. Just be completely honest. Say, I, I don't know what to do. I've got to go figure this out, and I will get back to you later. When my daughter chose to leave town with her hair on fire hitchhiking at 18 years old, I, I grieved because I didn't know when we were going to find her body. I mean, I went through a process of like, okay, she is in your hands, God. I mean, she's yours. I gave her to you. I, I, there's nothing I can do. She's accepting full responsibility for the consequences of her choices. Then I need to pray. And, and that kind of what God, I mean, that's what God does with me. I, I can picture God going, oh, no, not again. Please, Clay. Oh, you're 64. What are you doing? You know, but yeah. That's good. Another question. Good, yeah, good questions. Tom has experiences. I, I have a question for the panel. So how, how do you be an empathetic listener without giving somebody the impression that you agree with everything that they're doing or they're, agree, they're trying to get you to say, yes, say that I, that's a good idea. Tell me it's a good idea. I want to go tell my husband, my sister, my brother, my whatever, that you agreed with me and I'm right. How do you be an empathetic listener without giving the impression? Because I think it's one thing that's really hard, especially for at least for a lot of women who have learned to be empathetic listeners, but um, people walk away thinking you just agreed that they should do whatever, <laughs> and you haven't agreed. Yeah, no, I'd say the same. I, I tend to go right in the moment, kind of a gestalt thing. Is I will speak the truth and say, "Man, that I, I don't agree with you, but that has got to be painful." Yeah. You know, I, I will try to find in myself something I can identify with, but you know, I I don't have to be in a train wreck to know how bad it hurts. I don't have to do what you're doing to know that you're in pain. Um, to me, it's not, I can do a lot by just taking the time to not think about my own stuff. I mean, if I get really honest, in those kind of situations, I'll spend a lot of time going, okay, God, what do you want me to do? <laughs> I need you to talk to me, Lord, because right now I, I, don't, I want to get up and walk out of the room because what they just told me, I just, you know, I cannot agree to that. So I, I go to prayer. I, I don't, that's, that's my fallback is, God, I need your Holy Spirit because right now the flesh ain't here. One of the things I've done is just say, gee, I'm not sure how that's going to work for you. I like that one. Um, and and um, and see if they can take kind of follow that path of why would this not work for me? So you're not say you're still being empathetic and listening, 
but I'm just not sure how that's going to work out. This may sound almost um, almost cheesy, but it, it's actually well it's well known in counseling circles. Is I have a basic script that I have created for different situations, and I find and I have to be able to tell the truth. You know, so I have a response that I will give that is very sincere, very meaningful, but it says what I want it to say because I've thought about it ahead of time. And the reason I bring that up is if you're going to be in these kind of situations, you want to know where you stand and what you need to do and how far you're willing to go and what you're willing to say or not say. I mean, I, we spent hours and hours debating the ethics of this, that, and the other things so that we would know right where we stand and when we would have to say, I, you know what, I'm going to have to say on this thing, I'm going to have to point out, you really can't go kill them, okay? You just cannot do that. <laughs> if only he were joking about that. He's actually had to say that before. Yeah. I think I would like that. Yeah, I think we can we drop the last two questions and uh, or I guess we could have any any closing thoughts. Uh, and I also want to talk about what you the good work you guys are all doing, so we can we can fill out our response cards if we're interested. Um, we talked a lot about relationship. We talked a lot about hanging in there with people, not judging, but also having clear boundaries of what we do and don't want to do, and do do and don't feel good about doing. Those actions may change over time, um, but the care and the compassion should not. Any closing thoughts you have, any of you? Just again, uh, if you ever get a chance, uh, I'm sure every single one of us have watched this, but it's a great little three-and-a-half-minute video by Brene, Brene Brown on empathy. It's a little cartoon. But empathy is being with. It's not coming with and having to fix. It's not having a magical toolbox. It's about being with somebody. It's about paraphrasing. Oh, my gosh, it sounds like that was the worst. It sounds like you really got upset when that happened and she did that. And so when, when you're with somebody and you're being with and you're not throwing and you're not trying to give the fix-it answers, Typically, they walk away not feeling like you agree with all of the behaviors they've done. Typically, they walk away feeling like someone's heard them for the first time in a really long time. And that's what, how, how people change in the context of the relationship is by being with them as they heal, grow, learn, have aha moments figure out, I didn't realize that. I, I, I did a class last night with 11 guys, and one guy goes, oh my gosh, why didn't they teach this in elementary school? <laughs> he had a whole aha moment as to why he was a very angry man. And, and I love sitting with these guys as they have their moments, because they have, there was, there's a lot going on. It's not just as easy as saying, go there and get that fixed and do better. There's a, there's a, we got a complicated, as Peggy said, an extremely complicated brain, and it likes to hold on to a lot of hurts and a lot of memories of things that people have done to us. And we, it's hard to get over certain things. And so if we can develop the skill of empathy, which is not going in to fix anything, but being with whoever it is we're working with, and maybe sometimes it's just literally, can I just pray for you? Maybe sometimes it's not saying a single word. <laughs> I mean, sometimes it's walking, you know, down the sidewalk with them, whatever that is to you, but it's it's a different perspective. It's flipping the script. You know, with those the trauma, it's not what's wrong with you. It's hmm, what happened. It's it's we have to change the way we look at the people if we're going to do really good for them. If we're going to be really good workers, really good helpers, wherever whoever we're helping, we've got to come from a place of um, we're not all that. We're, but, and, 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 and when we when we sit with empathy, um, then there's no expectations. There's no expectations. There's no expectations on that person. They can heal when it needs to be healed. They can learn as they need to learn. 
and they can grow as they need to grow. It's the same thing when you do with your kids. You know, when you put a lot of expectations on your kids, the underlying message is they only love me when, or they only love me if I get the grades, the high grades, and the C's, and the trophies. And so we don't want to put expectations on the people we're working with. We just want to love them. We just want to be with them because there's enough expectations being put on a lot of the people I know that I'm working with, and, and they can't live up to the expectations that the people above them are and power over them are putting upon their lives. And so they really desperately, a lot of the people I believe that we are working with, they're desperately looking for someone to just be with them and sit with them and hear their story for the very first time, maybe. And rather, and not, answer, not give the, the cliché back, right, the answer or the fix it, but just be with. I like to call it getting in the mud. It, it gets dirty a little bit sometimes. If, if I can say anything, I, I'm, I'm a white water rafting guy. I like doing crazy stuff like that and mountain climbing and all that kind of stuff. And so I think in terms of search and rescue and anybody who is reaching out to kids that are at risk, if you're doing it by yourself, you're in trouble. I, I think you need a prayer support especially. Um, you know, one of the things we work with at-risk kids, we've got guys that work with them like very much so. We need prayer on that. Don't do it by yourself. Search and rescue is not a solo occupation. Um, if you've got kids that are at risk, then you, you gather your friends or the people that you trust that are praying for you and you up the prayer support because you're at war. I think we're at war for the lives of our kids, for the lives of our vets, to keep them from succumbing to the trauma that they've been through. And so we have to kind of go on a war footing in my mind. So that means it's like a search and rescue operation. We have to be strategic about it. You know, there's a lot of strategizing going on in Douglas County about how do we reach the at-risk kids and, and keep them from hurting themselves? How do we reach the at-risk vets? And so I, I, the more we can do of cooperating and coordinating, and, you know, that's one of my passions is I'm, I'm going to try to network all these various things people do, and we've got some software to help us. I'm so excited. <laughs> but, um, you know, how do we coordinate this? But don't try to do it by yourself, especially when you're dealing with the trauma of, like, you know, kids that are just going off the rails and stuff. You know, get a good, good prayer group around you, some good mentors. You know, find people that know more than you do, and, and don't be ashamed to go in and say, I don't know what I'm doing. You know, I need help. Um, anyway, Peggy said something in our, at our lunch. I didn't want to forget to have to bring out uh, when it comes to boundaries and limitations. She she said, and I'm going to summarize: communicate some limitations you have up front and clear and clearly. Don't be afraid to say, you know, I only answer email first thing in the morning, or um, you know, I don't answer calls in the evening. <laughs> And it's okay to say that. I don't feel, feel guilty about saying, I've got this limit and I've got this boundary. I'm not going to go past it, but just to be clear and upfront about it. I like when you said that. Yeah, we live in a dangerous age with texting and cell phones being and email and all the different uh, social media available. If people get your personal email or phone number or text, especially your phone number, some people will text you to death and you will feel it. So, um, it's best if you can't. It depends on the situation you are. There are situations where you do give out your phone number. But if you do, put the boundary on it. Just let them know right up front. You know, I have a friend that sends me a million emails at night, and I don't answer them because I don't think it's straight at night. And so I, she knows I'll only look at them in the morning. I actually might look at them sometimes, but I don't answer anything at night. I wait till morning because then I can gather my thoughts and I can do that. So it's really good if you are giving somebody your personal phone call because you're in a situation where that's appropriate to do so, to set those boundaries right up front. If you do it the first day, it's so much easier because then you could just reinforcement. But if they've already bombarded you 
with texts and phone calls and everything, it's harder and harder to get that boundary set. So set the boundaries up front. I only I only volunteer on Mondays or I only do, you know, whatever it is your boundary is, just set it up front. And you can say it kindly and sweetly and people will understand that and sometimes they'll respect it. <laughs> would you tell us the would you tell us the sleeping the sleeping bag story on the front porch? Would you tell us that story just as we wrap up? The sleeping bag with the kid on the front porch at the house. Oh my gosh. This is gonna become a It's a good story. And I probably tell it different every time, um, especially because it's getting close to my bedtime. No, I'm just kidding. Um, so I, like mentioned earlier, I worked with um, Catholic Community Services in Washington and um, worked with a um, child who um, had witnessed um, his mom being murdered. And years later, many years later, um, you know, I experienced many traumas after that, especially you know, being in care um, and hospitalizations, uh, and I became his therapist, and they placed him with his grandma, and his grandma, you know, of course you want to take your grandchildren in, but she hadn't, she hadn't had a relationship with this young man since he was an infant, um, and didn't realize all the things I had been through, and, you know, sometimes our systems don't share with us. Um, what kids have been through and you walk in blindly so his grandparents were doing everything they could um, to to take care of him and themselves um, and it wasn't working out so they called me up as their therapist and I go down um, and now the option is that he has to go into a foster home, a therapeutic foster home so I drive into the home because um, it's my responsibility to do placement. And, you know, my staff will say it takes me three hours just to do a, um, a what we call a brief intervention because I, I like to be with people um, and I get energy from people. And so sitting with this young man, and I got to know him over several weeks, um, really, really sweet kid. And we pull up, and he doesn't want to get out of the car. And so we sit there, and we're sitting there for a really long time now. So we're there for hours sitting in the car. And I'm thinking, this, you know, at some point I've got to go to the bathroom. Like, so I said, well, what if we go to Starbucks and we get some coffee? And so we went around the block, and he got out of the car there. And we had coffee, and we chatted for a while. We got back in the car, and we get to the home. And we're in the car again for quite a while. It wasn't several hours now. Um, it was a little bit long less than that. Um, and I convince him to go to the porch of the house. So now we're sitting on the porch for hours and it's getting dark. And I said, you know, I think I'm going to need some people to help us out tonight. So I call some of my support staff um, to come out to the house and so that they can sit with him and me, um, helping to build some relationship very quickly with this young man. And after a few hours of sitting on the porch, it's freezing cold in Washington, mind you, uh, I said to him, you know, I'm going to spend the night with you on the porch, but I have to run home and get my sleeping bag first. And so is that okay if I just run home and get my sleeping bag, and I'll be right back, um, and we'll sleep on the porch together. And 
So I'm on my way home, and it's a half an hour drive and across the bridge, um, and I get this call from my support staff person. They're like, well, he wants to talk to you. Oh, okay. So he gets on the phone, and he, um, he just said, you know, you really need to sleep in your own bed. I'm going to go in the house. I'll go in the house with your staff. And so I think it was just, you know, just, I don't know, I love, love people, mm-hmm. and um, he needed someone's just to be present until he was ready. That's a good story. Here's how I want to wrap up. I want to tell you some of the cool things these folks are doing. You have response cards near you. Don't feel the need to fill any of them out. Um, but if you're interested in learning more, they'll also be available either in here or in the lobby. Some of them have brochures out there. Um, let me explain what's what they're doing briefly. Uh, so Peggy, I mentioned, is working with ECHO, which is every child in, in Douglas County. It's, it's uh, wanting to partner up people who want to help in whatever way they can with the foster system. Some might be signing up foster fa- families. Some of it might be making welcome boxes. We actually have at Hughcrest Church, they're collecting welcome boxes that go to the DHS office. So when a kid is sitting there being taken into foster care, rather than twiddling his thumbs while the caseworker is calling family after family, they've got an age and gender-appropriate box of stuff to look at. It says things like, you're loved on the top. Pretty cool. Uh, so everything from that to, you know, sleeping on the porch in a sleeping bag? No, that's not happened yet, but... Uh, a lot of cool things they're doing with, with Echo. Um, Melanie works with Better Persons Advocacy. They have all kinds of places that they could put you to work, uh, depending upon your, your interest, your passion, your gifts. Uh, they have some shelters in town. They've got some other things. They just could use a lot of compassionate, helpful people. Uh, Robert has, I mentioned the agency FARA, Family, Faith, and Relationship Advocates. Uh, they've got an office down on Stevens. Uh, you can use people in all kinds of settings from working in the office. If you're handy, Melanie's husband's helped paint and do wiring in, in Robert's place. Um, so all kinds of needs. <laughs> He's very handy. And then Clay with Youth for Christ. Uh, there's so many cool things that they're doing with at-risk youth. Um, Mary's husband does a bike ministry. And there's uh, teen parents. There's um, other things I'm not thinking of right now. Hi- on, the, on the high school and middle school campuses, they call it Campus Life. And our youth pastor, Ricky, is working with that. So co- cool ways to mobilize people to mentor young people. Or what you're trying to do is raise up prayer warriors to pray for those who are mentoring these different sites where things are happening. Yeah. And, yeah. And, yeah. No, it's just... I've also got the fabulous Ann Carey who will be in the lobby representing Winchester School, where we do a couple different things uh, as a church that you could be a part of. One is a lunchtime mentoring at recess. You're partnered up with uh, kids sitting at a table playing some games. It's pretty easy and pretty fun. Uh, And also the smart readers. uh, Start making a reader today. Uh, That's either Tuesday or Thursday. It's about a 60 to 90-minute commitment. So that's what those things are on those checkboxes. You can leave the cards there or go find these people in the lobby. I've also got cookies and coffee and water so you can mingle and you can ask questions and we can enjoy this time and space. I want to say a huge, huge thank you to each one of these panelists for being here tonight. And for being my friends. I really appreciate you and all you're doing for our community. Um, Yeah, let me pray for us. God, you are the God of compassion and mercy, also the God of truth and of grace and of justice. 
I thank you that you are the God of justice. You will bring justice to bear in some of these awful, terrible, horrible situations that we've heard about and experienced. Uh, you see every tear that is, that is uh, cried. They're, they're written down in your book. Uh, and, Lord, we know that you have called us to be compassionate like you. I think of Psalm 82 that says, Defend the weak and the fatherless. Uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. So you use us in your mission, Lord, to bring compassion to this earth. Uh, would you inspire in us all kinds of ways that we can creatively uh, help with needs around us, but also give us wisdom as we try to think about boundaries and when to say no or when to say, how about something else, or how about we try something different? Um, I thank you again for each of these friends and the ways that they have been a blessing to our community. God, use each one of us sitting here tonight to be a blessing to our community. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.